Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 377, The King of Wales. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to episode 4 of our series on William, where, honestly, everything in Normandy just goes completely batshit. And you can listen to that episode and all of the previous members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Ariane, Danny, and Hugh for signing up already. Water and the ability to control waterways was an important aspect in the Welsh imagination. In fact, the importance of Welsh power on the seas even appears in the Mabinogion. And yet... The production of an independent navy doesn't seem to have been a priority for the kings of Wales. When we look for archaeological evidence or documentation for such a force, we tend to be left searching. And this lack of a navy, like the disinterest in fortification, marks how unique Wales was from their neighbors. England had finally taken a serious interest in controlling the seas, and by this point in the story, we've seen multiple successive English kings placing an emphasis on building, enhancing, and maintaining what would later be called our wooden wall. And that was in addition to the influence from Scandinavian cultures who've been populating the isle and bringing their seafaring ways with them. For centuries now, Scandinavian raiders and settlers from the north and west were moving into English towns, especially the ones on water, and they were bringing much of their culture with them. But the growing interest in having a navy that was happening elsewhere on the island doesn't appear to have been happening in Wales. And that's a little strange, as the region sat perilously close to the Norse colony of Dublin. And it also had extensive coastlines that could be reached from the sea from the north, south, and west. So why wasn't naval power a focus for Welsh rulers, the way it had become for many of their neighbors? Well, we can't know for certain. But one theory is that due to the rising sea power coming out of England, Ireland, and Scandinavia, Wales, which had been fractured for centuries, found itself unable to compete or simply unwilling to try. But Wales may have had another strategy altogether, and it was a strategy that does appear to have been working. See, the records are full of accounts of sea-based raiders landing in Wales, and then launching raids, only to find themselves confronted by Welsh land forces. So the kings of Wales may simply have been placing their attention elsewhere, specifically on defense. So rather than building expensive ships and maintaining sailors, they instead decided to wait for the raiders or invading forces to land in Wales and pick them apart once they got there. And when they did need sea power, well, they could just hire a fleet or two. And that does seem to have been the general plan for maritime matters in Wales. Because typically, when naval forces are mentioned in relationship to Welsh campaigns, well, those naval forces are either being commanded by the opposing forces or they're mercenary fleets that were hired from one of the nearby naval cultures, such as Ireland. The problem with that strategy, though, is that over time, it could come with a heavy cost because slowly, Wales was ceding the waterways, which meant that pirates and other rival nations were able to take control of the seas. 
and that very likely made it nearly impossible for the Welsh to reliably access the shipping lanes that tended to drive sea-based international trade. And an issue like that builds upon itself. If rival nations continue to bolster their navies, while Wales continues to sit it out, well then Wales ends up further and further behind. And that imbalance was likely a contributing factor to why Wales was becoming increasingly insular during this period. But there was one exception to the Welsh rule of neglecting a navy. The Kingdom of Gwynedd had a long history with the sea. As you might recall, the legendary founder of the House of Gwynedd, Cunetha, reportedly arrived on Welsh shores via the sea. The other major dynasty of Gwynedd, similarly, traces its roots to Murfin Firk, arriving via sea and fortifying Aberthraw. And this link to the sea maintained through successive kings. For example, King Cabwathlin of Gwynedd, the Welsh king who defeated Edwin of Northumbria in the 6th century, appears to have had some sort of naval force that helped him in that campaign. King Adaradap Rodri of Gwynedd, the son of Rodri Mawr, also regularly fought the Vikings and very likely used naval power in his campaigns. Gwynedd had a long history with the sea, and they knew how useful it could be to royal ambitions. And as you might recall, before Gruffith was the king of all of Wales, he was the king of Gwynedd. And Gruffith, unique amongst Welsh rulers, appears to have been maintaining a navy and pursuing a naval strategy. So why? Well, it's possible that this is cultural. The kings of Gwynedd may have viewed their duties as being tied to power on the sea, or at least in maintaining a naval force. So Gruffith may have simply been raised to see royalty as being intertwined with controlling the sea. But this also might have been circumstantial and personal to Gruffith. Early in Gruffith's reign, he engaged in multiple campaigns over land. His campaigns against his neighbors led him to fighting battles in the mountainous regions of central Wales. And for years, King Gruffith fought for domination over Wales through a combination of political machinations and land-based battles. But eventually, things took a turn when he fought with King Hool of Dehybarth. King Hool had gathered a mercenary fleet from Ireland, and their influence made Gruffith's campaign to annex the southern Welsh quite difficult. And although the records are murky, it's possible that Gruffith barely made it out with his life. In the middle of that campaign, in 1042, we have an obscure reference to Gruffith being captured by the, quote, Gentiles of Dublin, end quote, which almost certainly was Houle's Irish Scandinavian mercenary fleet. Now, Gruffith didn't remain imprisoned for long, and soon he was back out there trying to annex his southern neighbors. But two years later, in 1044, Gruffith was defeated at the Towie, and that was a battle where, once again, the key role was being played by an Irish mercenary fleet. And that fleet continued to be a problem for Gruffith until it was sunk in 1052. So as his ambitions kept getting dashed by these sea raiders, I wonder if Gruffith realized that, while focusing on land engagements had worked fairly well for defensive campaigns, he would never be able to conquer all of Wales, nor effectively defend against English incursions, if he abandoned the battlefield on the waves. Because shortly after that mercenary fleet was sunk, we start seeing records of Gruffith working with mercenary fleets of his own. 
and Gruffith's campaigns of 1055 and 1058 were both propelled by sea power that was provided by foreign fleets. But mercenaries aren't the same as a navy. And now that Gruffith was king of all of Wales, what he really needed was a navy. His kingdom had an enormous shoreline that was ringed with numerous waterways that any enterprising invasion fleet could take advantage of. Furthermore, Gruffith was now governing over a huge chunk of land, and if he wanted to be able to quickly and effectively communicate with his subjects and coordinate any large-scale domestic or military projects, well, sailing was the best way to go about that. Welsh land is rugged, and that can make travel and communication difficult. But with a fleet protecting Welsh interests on the seas, well, then Gruffith would be able to quickly send messages or even travel to many of the important locations in Wales. And so at some point around here, King Gruffith began constructing a fleet. And it was large enough that the English began discussing it in their own accounts. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, John of Worcester, and the life of King Edward all mention a significant Welsh naval fleet based out of Rhythlin. We also have records of Gruffith sailing out of Rhythlin on short notice. So this was a force that he used personally and frequently. And apparently... Gruffith was riding the seas in style. Records speak of a gilded flagship with, quote, a prow and stern of solid gold cast by Smith's assiduous skill, end quote. So apparently, this navy was not just a utilitarian solution to a large kingdom. It was also a chance to flex a little symbolic muscle as well. Wales, under King Gruffith, was beginning to contest the seas. And he was doing a good job of it. In fact, in later conflicts, we'll see foreign armies being forced to coordinate both land and sea forces when they attempt to invade Wales. So what Gruffith had done here was an incredible achievement. And while he was working on the seas, he was also bringing in a ton of wealth into the country. The records speak glowingly of how much loot he acquired during the sacking of Hereford. And it's quite likely that his other raids were similarly successful. However, the biggest source of raiding income for Gruffith wasn't the stuff he took. It was the people he captured. Slave trading was alive and well at this point. And we see records of King Gruffith capturing slaves during his campaigns and raids. And then those slaves would then be sold at markets in Ireland or elsewhere. And then the revenue that was gained from that would be critical for funding his future military campaigns, where he would be able to, you guessed it, capture more slaves. So then he could sell them, so he could then fund another campaign. You get the idea. And this whole thing was making King Gruffith really wealthy. And he expanded that wealth with further extractive programs, like constructing a silver mine close to his primary residence at Rhythlin. And all of this was combining to make Gruffith a very rich man. And his court was full of, quote, innumerable treasures of gold and silver and gems and purple raiment, end quote. We're also told that Gruffith and his court feasted regularly and that his halls were home to many earthly delights. In fact, Gruffith lived so lavishly that even the English scribes had to grudgingly admit that the wealth on display and the amount of pomp at his court was impressive. And that was a significant admission, including the comments about his raiment. Because during this era, 
politics, wealth, and clothing were closely intertwined. What a ruler wore for certain functions was just as political as what we have been earlier speaking about. And Gruffith's style was so chic that it was becoming the talk of other courts. Walter Mapp specifically mentions the king's royal mantle in his account. And it was apparently a mantle so finely made that when later Welsh kings from rival royal lines sought to burnish their reputations, and when scribes wished to emphasize ornate clothing, well, they spoke of their opulence in reference to Gruffith's regalia. King Gruffith's clothing was so finely made and so luxurious that it had become shorthand for incredibly fancy clothes even among rival noble lines, which otherwise wanted to distance themselves from Gruffith. And interestingly, like any good fashionista, Gruffith knew that style wasn't just about money. Your look needs to tell a story. And it seems that Gruffith was using his clothing to tell a story about history. Because one version of the Welsh Chronicle refers to Gruffith as the Golden Torqued King. And that's a fascinating detail. Because if Gruffith did indeed wear a golden torque, that would suggest that his regalia was deliberately reaching back to the ancient Celtic past. And that would have been wise. Gruffith wanted to do something that had never been done before. He wanted to be king over all of the Welsh. And to do that, he really needed his subjects on board. And building a new set of royal symbols that reached back to their collective past would have made that project easier. And this attention to a shared culture and history isn't just found in clothing choices. We also see indication that poetry and the arts were flourishing under Gruffith's rule. Now, this often tends to happen when a nation is prosperous and at peace. And Wales was mostly both of those at this point. But I suspect that in this case, there was another cause for it. Because Gruffith appears to have been deliberately advancing the arts in Wales. And it's likely he was doing this because art is an important diplomatic tool. Especially when your goal is to unify a group of people who have a long history of division and don't necessarily see themselves as having much in common. In that instance, providing a shared cultural framework can go a long way. And this could explain why, in Walter Mapp's accounts, Gruffith was linking his rule with the most famous legends that came out of those lands. By doing that, King Gruffith was linking his current ambitions to a mythological year zero. So rather than what he was trying to do being something new and untested, a unified Wales was a return to a legendary past. And this focus appears to have had an impact on the literature produced during Gruffith's reign, as well as shortly thereafter. For example, scholars suspect that the four branches of the Mabinogi one of the most significant Welsh cultural works of this period, may have been compiled towards the end of Gruffith's reign. Furthermore, several influential lives of saints were recorded shortly after the reign of King Gruffith. And fascinatingly, the legendary King Arthur appears in two of them. And Arthur, the sleeping native son of destiny who's expected to return and expel the Saxons from the land, well, that was exactly the sort of story that a Welsh king locked in a conflict with an English king would have wanted everyone telling. And in addition to promoting the arts, King Gruffith was also ruling from a royal court that was heavily organized with many figures that you'd expect to see. Chamberlains, treasurers, all that sort of thing. 
And it's likely that many of the traditions and roles that were carried out in his court could trace their history all the way back to the reign of King Huultha, who had arranged his court in the Carolingian model. So we have a king who looked and dressed the part of a powerful ancient king, who was then linking his court to Charlemagne and King Huultha, and who was linking his vision to an Arthurian past. And you can see how that would have appealed to many of the powerful and educated members of society. And speaking of swaying powerful members of society, there's a document contained in the Book of Llandaff where Gruffith is listed as the king of all Wales, and that's in an entry dated to about 1055. And what's interesting about it is that we also see King Murrig of Glamorgan appearing as a witness, and yet King Gruffith is the king of all of Wales. So why do we have a king of Glamorgan there? Well, scholars suspect that King Gruffith may have been ruling over all of Wales, but in at least one region, he was acting as an overking rather than as a direct monarch. And scholars posit that King Murrig may have supported King Gruffith in his war against a Highbarth, and so rather than being deposed, he was allowed to rule as a client king. So you can see the care and the deafness that Gruffith was going through in becoming the first king of Wales. Different problems required different solutions. And in that same document, we see significant land grants being given to the church in Glamorgan, which was a region that very well may have been damaged in one of Gruffith's wars. And this wasn't the first time that Gruffith had given property to a church that had recently suffered harm during one of his wars. This tact of granting lands appears to have been one of his main tactics for healing rifts between the crown and the church. And you might recall that after the sacking of Hereford, King Gruffith forced King Edward to cede ecclesiastical lands to the church at Glamorgan, which is the very same institution that he was also granting lands to. So these records might be giving us a glimpse at the balance that King Gruffith had to maintain between his rule and the church, especially the church in Glamorgan. And he certainly would have needed their help. After all, convincing everyone in Wales to unify was difficult work especially considering that the man who was trying to unify them was the very same man who was also responsible for the deaths of a lot of Welshmen. In fact, the reason why Gruffith had so much land to hand out in the South was likely due to the fact that he'd only recently killed one of their kings, as well as a bunch of their nobles. So there were probably more than a few people holding a grudge, and that might be why we see the Welsh king handing out lands like it was going out of style. In fact, we even see records of him giving large chunks of land in Gwent to his own court poet. And I guess I should point that out too. He had a court poet. Welsh rulers often did. The court poet served an important role. You see, Welsh rulers tended to use them as politicians and propagandists. If a Welsh ruler wanted to influence how people, especially powerful people, thought of him, or thought of his reign or the events that had transpired, well, he would need a good court poet. And King Gruffith needed that kind of influence. So I'm not surprised that his court poet found himself getting quite rich. And given that Gruffith was a patron of the arts, and given how he lavished attention upon his court poet, there's something odd that pops up. You see, we don't see praise poems about King Gruffith coming out of Wales. Now, other written sources speak of Gruffith as the king of the Britons, and they brag that, quote, he from his beginning to end pursued the Saxons and other Gentiles and slaughtered and destroyed them and defeated them in a great number of battles, end quote. Gruffith is written of as the, quote, head and shield and defender of the Britons, end quote. And the Book of Llandaff says that he was, quote, 
the sole and preeminent ruler of the British, end quote. We even see Griffith's power and wealth being praised in the English charters. There are all kinds of scribes who are eager to praise Griffith in their documents, even scribes who are writing generations later. So why don't we have praise poems about him as well? Well, poetry is a thorny issue. Most poets and bards during this era had to scrape a living by traveling around with a noble's household, and even fighting alongside them if needs be. And otherwise, they'd provide entertainment and some form of historic record through the poems and songs that were composed. So these were people who quite literally had to sing for their supper, and only a very few of them were famous and connected well enough to become fixtures in court and become court poets, the Barth Tele. And King Gruffith had at least one of them. And now that poet was a wealthy land magnate in Gwent. But for the most part, the poems that were being composed were likely being done by one of the more itinerant bards in the area. And the key thing to remember is that poetry during this period was an oral tradition. Poems were spoken or sang. This wasn't the era of E.E. E. Cummings, where half of the art lies in the line breaks and texts where the audience was the reader and the poem sits in relationship between a person and the paper. In much of modern poetry, you can actually lose some of the poem if it's performed rather than being read. But the poetry of Gruffith's era was a very different art form. It was meant to be performed. And actually, if you made a really good poem, it would still be many years before it was written down. Typically, the act of having a poem written down would be paid for by one lord or another. And being hired to perform a poem or to write it down was one of the main ways that poets during this period made money. But generally, the act of writing down a poem only happened after a poem had become popular enough to merit it. Which took a long time. I mean, this was before YouTube and Spotify, so it wasn't like you were just going to stumble upon a new hot track and listen to it several times. If you were in Abigail and the hottest poem of the century had just dropped in Camarthen... Well, you might live your entire life without ever hearing it. So consequently, if you're a king who had praise poems written about you, chances are you wouldn't be the one who commissioned some scribes to write the thing down. That would be a task left to future generations. And if those future generations were ruled over by a rival dynasty, a dynasty that may have felt a bit insecure when they looked at your accomplishments, well, you might end up having your poems lost to history. And that, very well, may have been what happened to King Gruffith. Though, there might have been something else at play here as well. Think of it this way. I'm guessing that a fairly large portion of you had never heard of King Gruffith at Pluellen before you listened to this show. Overall, he's not a very well-known figure. And even in Wales, he's not one of the marquee leaders that's typically discussed. And don't you think that's strange? For example, when you look at later legends that are written down and kind of form our cultural imagination, you see Rodri Maurer and King Huel Thaw getting a lot of attention. And in several centuries, we'll also have Owen Glendower appear in our story, and he also retains a certain amount of popularity. But as for the first and only man to have reigned as King of all of Wales, well, he doesn't end up in the discussion all that much. And when he is in the discussion he definitely doesn't get the same degree of shine that the other figures I mentioned do. Rodri and Huel are often put forward as models of an ideal Welsh king, but not Gruffith. 
despite his significant military and political achievements. So why is that? Well, it might have to do with the fact that skill on the battlefield and a talent for foreign policy doesn't necessarily mean you'll be equally skilled at diplomacy or have a talent for domestic policy. And King Gruffith, despite his obvious talents, appears to have been lacking in other areas. He'd killed and conquered for a large portion of his life. And before he was king, he was a bandit raider. So Gruffith had a long history with advancing his own ambitions at the expense of others. And while that might make for an effective conqueror, it doesn't necessarily make for the best leader during peacetime. And Gruffith's flaws only became more pronounced as he gathered more power. There are hints in the records that King Gruffith pushed his wealth extraction and his taxation system to the limit, attempting to squeeze every last coin out of Wales in order to pay for his ambitious policies of expansionism and consolidation. Which does make sense. The man was living lavishly while also launching some pretty expensive military programs. So someone was going to have to pay for that. And those costs would have been significant. Because not only was Gruffith constructing a native Welsh navy, there was also the issue of his wars. You might recall that King Gruffith's wars went a lot longer than the law allowed for, and that would have been expensive to maintain. And those costs were almost certainly extracted from the local population. Especially since King Gruffith was a prolific raider before he became king. So he was experienced in nicking other people's stuff. So... When he and his men were stationed on the English border, scaring off Earl Harold and his men, well, there was a good chance that they were also foraging for supplies from the locals, which ultimately meant they were stealing the food and supplies that the locals needed to survive the winter. Not exactly the sort of thing that would make you popular with your subjects. And beyond that, there was also the issue of King Gruffith the Man. And to illustrate the potential issue here, I'll tell you a story that we have about King Gruffith's wife, which was recorded by Walter Mapp. Now, Gruffith had several partners in his life, but in this instance, we suspect that Walter is telling us a story about Eldgif, the daughter of Earl Elfgar of Mercia, who was said in multiple sources to have been exceptionally beautiful, just like crazy hot. And she was also the granddaughter of Lady Godiva, so, you know, maybe being hot as hell ran in the family. Now, Gruffith's marriage to Eldgith was a politically wise move, as it created a marriage alliance between Gruffith and his closest English threat, Mercia. With one simple wedding, Gruffith brought Mercia closer to his side and further deepened the rift that existed between the court of King Edward and his Mercian subjects. It was quite clever, and if we were just looking at the politics, we'd see this as just yet another indication of how effective Gruffith was as a king. But Walter tells us that, for Gruffith, this wasn't just politics. He was head over heels for Eldgif. I mean, just look at her. Come on. However, Eldgif was disinterested in Gruffith. I guess it turns out that hot young ladies who are forced into an arranged marriage with some random dude for political purposes aren't always that thrilled about the way their lives have played out. And showing the degree of empathy that I'm sure made Eldgith super excited about this marriage, Gruffith took this right on the chin and only thought about how it impacted him. Specifically, he felt aggrieved that she wasn't into him. 
And Walter tells us that Gruffith handled this poorly. He became extremely jealous of his wife's attention and suspicious of her actions, which is just a surefire way to woo a lady. I mean, who doesn't like self-pity and jealousy in a partner? And this situation became so bad that at one point, the king heard a rumor that a young nobleman had a dream about having an affair with a queen. Just a dream. And the king went apeshit. The poor young man was confronted and stupidly, he admitted he did have that dream. My guess is he probably responded with, what? It was a dream. Are you serious? And bad news for the kid. King Gruffith was super serious. So serious, in fact, that he wanted to torture and kill the young man for this dream. His family, though, intervened and offered themselves as surety, hoping to allay the king's anger. But King Gruffith was having none of it, and he imprisoned the hapless noble nonetheless. Now, it is possible that this guy was a bit of an edgelord. I mean, I'm sure we all know at least one person growing up who thought it was funny to endlessly talk about how hot someone's mom was. So maybe that's what this kid was doing. I don't know. But even if it was, threatening to torture and kill the lad suggests that this situation was getting way out of hand. I suspect that everybody involved except for Gruffith knew that. Because rather than the court carrying out King Gruffith's plan for revenge, they summoned an arbiter. The arbiter, based on his knowledge of the law, appears to have been some sort of judge or law speaker and it was left to him to handle the matter of the royal thirst trap. After hearing the case, the Arbiter declared that the oldest and most long-standing laws of Wales have set out what should be done in this instance. If you outrage another man's wife, then a penalty is due, and the amount of the penalty depends on the rank of the husband. In this case, it was the king's wife, and so the fine was set at 1,000 kine. After the fine is paid, the perpetrator must be allowed to go free and unharmed. That's what the law said. And in this case, the man accused didn't deny he dreamt of having an affair with the queen. And if he had carried out that offense in reality, then he'd be fined and allowed to go free, unharmed. So no torture, no executions, just a fine. However, since he didn't actually carry out the offense and just dreamt of it, a different punishment was required. Dreams, it was determined, are a reflection of reality, and so too must be his punishment. Therefore, the boy was instructed to go to a nearby lake and set 1,000 kine on the shore in full view of the king. Then he was to get into a boat and row out into the water until he could see both the king and the fine reflected in the water. In doing so, the fine was paid to the reflection, and the young man would then be allowed to row back to the shore and take back his money with the punishment being fully satisfied. King Gruffith heard this and kind of lost his mind. He wanted a real punishment. He wanted blood, or at the very least, money. What he didn't want was some weird ritual where he'd waste a perfectly good morning looking at a reflection of some money. But the decision had been reached. And now, even he had to abide by it. And so, after a rather tense morning at the lake, the matter of the royal thirst trap had been handled. And it's stories like this that make me absolutely love Walter Mapp. You don't get details like this anywhere else. And assuming that these stories at least have some degree of truth to them, I can't help but think back to earlier accounts of King Gruffith. The ones that spoke of when he was just a boy, 
and how he was getting into trouble because he was shy and he didn't want to do any of the things that noble boys tended to do. Something about his jealousy and the toothless rage that he expressed throughout the entire situation makes me think that deep down, he may have still been that little weird kid who played in the ashes of his father's hearth fire. Because at this point, Gruffith's power was supreme. And yet everything about this situation screams weakness. And if we can trust the earlier accounts, King Gruffith's entire political arc began with him getting bullied until he acted out in response. So maybe this is just who he was. One other thing that I love about this account is the use of water, the attention to reflections, the general demeanor of the arbiter, and how even the king couldn't overrule his decree. All of it echoes traditions and practices that go back to the Celts, even to the Druids. And it makes me think that little pieces of that culture survived the Roman occupation, and then the forced conversion, and the centuries that followed. The other part that I like is that it shows us a different side to Gruffith. For the most part, King Gruffith is spoken about like he's a force of nature. I mean, sure, when he was younger, the scribes spoke about how lazy he was. But once he was king, the scribes mostly just talked about his political accomplishments, his military campaigns, and his courtly activities. But here, we get a small glimpse into how he probably behaved in court and what kind of man he was. And I think we can all begin to see why Gerald of Wales, who was writing in the 1100s, spoke of King Gruffith as a tyrant. So what can we learn about Gruffith from all of this? Well, for me, I think it's undeniable that King Gruffith's rule was effective at seizing territory. And he obviously had a good eye for how to wield culture to advance his plans for unification. And he clearly knew how to wield propaganda. But he still wasn't that great at the core aspects of domestic policy, which impact people's daily lives. The parts of rule that, while they aren't sexy, tend to make people happy. Nor does he seem to have been fostering the sort of courtly environment that would endear him to his subjects. Instead, much like his contemporary Macbeth, he seems to have been making enemies at every turn. And so that might be why we don't have any praise poems for Gruffith and why he isn't being held up as a model king like Roger E. Maurer was. It could also explain why Gruffith would be remembered as a tyrant, and why, when Gruffith's half-brother, Blethyn, would later succeed him on the throne, he quickly acquired a reputation as a major reformer of the legal system. Because legal reform is a pretty good way to try and course-correct a kingdom after a tyrannical reign. The truth is that, like with every other figure we've discussed in this show, Gruffith was complex, and his accomplishments don't erase his flaws. But his flaws, in turn, don't erase his accomplishments either. In history, there are no heroes. There do seem to be a lot of anxious, jealous men, though. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us on Reddit, and you can find links to all our communities in the community section of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.